And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Maggie. And I'm Harmony. And today we're reading another bite-sized bit. What decade are we in, Maggie? 2000. Finally made it to the 21st century. Which means that this is actually the second last to last episode of Bite Size Bits. I know. Do we have replacement plans yet? Yes, we're going to start a poetry series after this. So that's what you can look forward to in 2021. That's very exciting. And what is the book that we are taking our short story from? So it's called Interpreter of Maladies by Jumpra Lari. This book was published in 1999 and then won a bajillion major literary awards in 2000. It was just the bee's knees. So we're talking about the story Sexy from that collection. All right. And I had a lot of feelings about this story. I felt like there was a lot going on. Do you want to give a summary or do you want me to? You can give the summary. I'm a little tired. (laughs) This story opens up on a woman living in Boston named Miranda. I assume that she's a white woman, though I don't know that it ever directly says that, but there are cultural context clues that suggest this. And she's talking to her Indian friend. Indian, right? Mm Mm-hmm. She's talking to her Indian friend who is telling her a story about how her cousin's husband left her for another woman. And as she's being told this story, she reflects on an affair that she's having with another man who also happens to be Indian. He's Bengali. And the story just kind of goes through this affair and her changing feelings about it and she has an opportunity to reflect and see that she's been kind of a shitty person and that this man is not treating either her or his wife fairly and then there's a lot going on with race and sexuality that sometimes gets a little weird so (laughs) where do you want to start Maggie? This is an interesting story because it's obviously two parallel similar stories happening at the same time, right? On one hand, you're getting Laxmi's sort of updates, right, on the situation that's happening with her cousin. And like to add it to insult to injury, the affair that's happening there is happening with an English woman who's half his age. There's eventually a pending divorce and it's the whole thing. And then Miranda's in the other shoes of this situation, right? Where like she's the person that the affair is happening with. And she is able to, at the beginning, I think, reflect on the fact that he's cheating on his wife is wrong. But it's not until she comes back into the country and their relationship changes that she's able to have a more empathetic perspective on the whole thing. Yes. So let's talk about Miranda and Dev's first meeting. Because here's something that struck me about this relationship and why she ends up into it. Because Miranda is also the younger party in this relationship as well. And we think is probably a white woman. So there's some weird cultural context going there too, where the quote unquote pretty white woman is going off and stealing your man. When she first meets him, there's this weird conversation about aging that's happening. She's at a department store and this woman tells her that she needs to start applying cream to her face because she's 22. And after 25, you know, that's when all of your wrinkles are set. And then it just gets worse from there. So, I mean, I'm fucked, but (laughs) what do you think about that? 
conversation in position to like her meeting Deb for the first time. What do you think the significance of that is? There's so many things happening here because I think it's implied throughout the story, although I don't know that it's ever explicitly said. So correct me if you got a different sort of feel from this, but it did kind of seem like Dev was significantly older than Miranda. Like I said, I don't think that's ever explicitly stated. So I think that it really, to me, showcases the fact that Miranda's figuring things out and she's figuring out things through, it's almost like fake it until you make it until you're really a grown up, right? And it starts with this scene where she's buying all of this anti-aging stuff even though she's literally 22 in her first job essentially but you know she's buying all this anti-aging stuff and part of it is because she's trying to keep a conversation going longer so that she can continue to scope out Dev she notices he's not wearing a wedding ring and like all of this stuff gives her opportunity to talk to him but to me there's so many images throughout the story of Miranda like essentially just trying to behave how she thinks a grown-up would or should in this scenario and I think that this opening scene really sets up that expectation for her characterization throughout the story. That's a really good point. I didn't catch that. But now that I think about it, you're right, because she's 22, right? So she's probably just out of college. And I do think that he's older for a few reasons. One of them is that she says that he's the first man who's ever had a mustache that she's been attracted to. And I think that in general, we tend to associate mustaches with at the very least like middle-aged men. And he's also a homeowner and he lives in the suburbs. Yeah, that's right. When it comes to Dev, at least in the beginning, I think there's this dual exoticism going on on the part of Miranda. A, because he's a true grown-up. B, because he's Indian. The true grown-up part I think comes in with the fact that he has a mustache the fact that he follows her out of the store and holds open doors for her and stuff and she says at one point that he is different from all of the men she's been with before right the boys from high school that later turned into more pretentious boys in college or something like that and I also kind of got the implication that when she said that that he was also like the only non-white man perhaps that she had slept with even though that's never explicitly stated I'm trying to grapple with this traditionalism and like traditional masculinity paired with this aspect of race that seems to be going on here. Yeah, absolutely. She definitely fetishizes him. I think that the author talks about it really cleverly because it's never intentional or like insidious necessarily, right? But it's just this pervasive exoticization of him. It starts even from the beginning. Part of the reason she ends up thinking that he's unique and intriguing is because he tells her that part of her name is Indian. And she latches onto that and is like, oh, that's new. That's something I don't know about. And she ends up buying a book so that she can figure out how to write that part of her name in a different language and like she talks about the fact that to her it's scribbles but it really hits her for the first time that what scribbles to her means something to other people so there's like that aspect of it going on I think coupled with the fact that she's attracted to him because he treats her like she has been conditioned this whole time like a man should he pays for things he's really complimentary they go on to adventures together and he's the first man that's ever made her feel sexy or told her that she's sexy yeah that's That's an interesting point because I think that throughout the story, we get a link between her exploring the Indian Bengali culture and sexuality. She goes into a Indian supermarket at one point and there are belly dancers on the screen and she's talking about how they are sexy, essentially. And she's there trying to find the doppelganger of Dev's wife. 
And she does. She she sees somebody and she's like, oh, this woman is pretty. And then her first introduction to sexuality, it seems, is when she is a child at a birthday party from neighbors of hers that are Indian. And there's a picture of Kali there. And Kali is like bold and proud in her sexuality. And that was interesting to me because from what little I do know of Kali, she's the goddess of destruction and creation. So it makes sense that she was depicted as naked, but she's also seen like standing on a man's head and so there's this sort of weird power that I think Miranda is expecting to feel as she steps into her sexuality through this affair. That I think is totally the nail on the head. She keeps expecting things to go in a certain way almost, right? Like she's expecting to feel powerful and she's expecting to feel sexy and want the illicitness of it almost is going to make it better and it turns out that that's only true when she can separate the fact that he's married from Deb's everyday existence when his wife is in a different country and it just feels like they're actually in a relationship and it turns out that when the wife comes back and it feels like an actual affair that's what makes it feel bad and icky and wrong and takes away all of those feelings of power from her and desiredness yeah yeah so I want to focus on Deb for a hot second based off of what you just said, because he, it's implied throughout the story, is the one in the wrong. There's maybe some subtext about Miranda doing shitty things and her like realizing that what she does is shitty, but we come to the conclusion that he is the one mistreating her and mistreating his wife. And for me on a personal level, it really struck with the fact that he is like a more traditional masculine figure because I feel like throughout my own dating experience, when I've been with people who have treated me in a way where we're in more traditional gender roles if they open up doors or try and like romance me in some way generally speaking I've found that later on in the relationship once that fun flirty feeling goes away they don't respect me and I'm wondering what you think of that because I wonder if this is just a bias that I have or if this is what the story is hinting at or if this is true across the board (laughs) I don't know I think that you're right that Dev is painted as being primarily in the wrong there's places for Miranda to self reflect and realize like she had a hand in it as well and I think that sometimes part of the parallel storytelling that happens kind of showcases Miranda's naivety I think in thinking that things are going to be okay but Dev is really sort of painted out as being the person who like did something fucked up which to a certain extent is fair right like he's not wearing a wedding ring when they first meet he initiates the entire thing Miranda knows what's going on and I do think that there's a moral dilemma there that she doesn't ever fully unpack through the story Mm-hmm. But like, it's Dev who's taking these initiative actions and things like that. And he's the one that's married, right? He's the one that has upheld this responsibility or is supposed to be upholding it. Yeah. And he is very traditionally masculine. I don't know. It's hard to say. I think maybe the author is, is like making a commentary on that because from what we get from the story about Loxmi's cousin, we see a similar trend happening with these traditional masculine ideals and like a parallel story follows. I don't know. I think I would have to read more by this author, though, to firmly say that that's the point she was trying to make, I guess. Hmm. But I think it's at least hinted at or implied in this story. That reading of it is a fair one. Okay. So then while we're talking about masculinity, can we talk a little bit about Lakshmi's cousin's son? Do we remember his name? What's his name? Rohan, I think. Or Rohan, maybe, depending on how you pronounce it. But yeah, that scene with him is real fucking weird. Okay, good. Because I kept on thinking about it and I was like, this is fine, question mark. This is fine? 
So when we talk about when we talk about sexuality and then also masculinity, he's an interesting figure because he's so very much a child. I think that Miranda also, even from the get go, doesn't really see him as a traditional childlike figure. She calls him skinny, and it looks like he's been like smoking packs of cigarette, and he has dark circles under his eyes. Which I don't know if that's me- meant to like say that he's deprived of something. I don't know if that's symbolic at all. But their interaction like really borders for me from innocent, just childlike curiosity and like him being the figure to help her realize that what she's doing is wrong. And then also very uncomfortable and inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's almost trying to step up into this masculine role. And his whole thing about the Atlas, like he's obsessed with learning the capitals. That really tied into me with some other points that I'm sure we'll talk about more to do with culture and the white idealization of culture, or maybe curiosity about Indian culture. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have, can you coherently like talk about this scene? There was a lot there. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I guess as a summary of how events break down, he shows up at Miranda's house because Miranda is voluntold to babysit, I would say. And initially, they're just having an okay time. He's a little nosy, he's wandering around in her stuff, but like, it does feel like mostly normal kid behavior. And also, I I think it is important to note that we don't actually know how old he is, because he skipped two grades, so he's- I thought he was seven. Did they ever say that explicitly? Because I didn't catch it, but He's like a kid kid. Yeah, he's little. The first inkling that you get that something like a little weird is happening is she's pouring herself a cup of coffee and he insists on having one and manages to guilt her essentially into giving him one too. No, I don't think that he ever gets the coffee. He tries to guilt her. She went into the kitchen and prepared a cup for him as he'd requested. She selected a mug she didn't care for in case he dropped it. Thank you, he said when she put it on the table. So there's this weird like pushing of boundaries. Yeah, and it starts from the very beginning. And I think it's extra odd because it feels very manipulative from the first start, but you don't super catch it with this one interaction, right? Because it's just a kid talking about coffee. Plenty of kids ask for coffee. Plenty of kids, regardless of gender, are not above just being like, please just give me it. And I think especially with a babysitter, which is what makes this interaction so strange to begin with, she's given very little direction on his boundaries, except to just be told that he's a very mature kid. So like, she's kind of floundering like I'm the grown-up in this situation but this is weird what the fuck am I supposed to do so she gives him a little bit of coffee but it just like sets up this precedent where ultimately he ends up in her bedroom and he's looking in her closet and he finds the dress that she bought specifically to be the ideal mistress right it made her feel good it made her feel sexy and he's like you should put it on and she's like there's no reason to put it on eventually she agrees to put it on to show him and then he insists on staying to watch and says that his mom lets him watch while she changes and that his mom comes into his bed sometimes and she gets this is like her boundary and she hits the point where she physically picks him up and moves him out of the room but she still changes and puts it on and then he calls her sexy and she's like do you know what that word even means right because he's a kid and she's thoroughly uncomfortable simultaneously and trying to adult through this situation and he says sexy is when you love somebody that you don't actually know and so like this is the thing that breaks her but like this whole set of interactions is very strange because on the one hand you recognize the fact that she's the adult and he's the child and ultimately it's her responsibility to like 
not give in to his ridiculous demands. But on the other hand, he is very much acting like a mini version of pretty much all of the other men we see her interact with in this story. Which is Dev. Yeah, he's almost acting like a mini version of Dev. And it's very weird and very uncomfortable. And on the one hand, I felt as a reader, at least, really uncomfortable with Miranda for, like, not taking more of a stand as the adult in the situation. And just being like, no, knock it off, because that's what she should have done. He's seven. But on the other hand, he's so good at manipulation at such a young age that it just feels blurry and icky and wrong while it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Because when her relationship with Dev starts to devolve there is a lot of him telling her to do things and her just doing them and it does she she like mentally compares the child and Dev too which feels weird but it also like I don't know I remember being a young teenager right and I was babysitting other people's children not just my siblings at 11 and I remember scenarios where the little boy I used to babysit and his mom still jokes about this with used to like insist on kissing me on the lips and it's like the grown-ups are there and you're like this is weird and they'll be like oh you're his girlfriend haha that's an uncomfortable boundary to set especially when you're young and you don't feel like you have grown-up support and I've also felt that while babysitting like little girls as well they'll just start to ingest and they'll be like well our mom lets us do this and you're like I don't know where the boundary is here but this feels awkward and uncomfortable yeah I do get that but I do think that there's also she is 22 Yeah, it's different because she's an actual (laughs) grown-up. But I think that that pairs with something. There's like an issue with this entire time, which is she's being infantilized and doesn't realize it essentially the entire time. And you see it starkly in this scenario where she's supposed to be the adult and is still having her boundaries pushed when she should really be in power. Not even in theory. She's the grown-up. I feel uncomfortable unpacking this infantilization and also this relationship as a white woman because this is a story written by someone who isn't white and both of the women on the other side both of the married women aren't white women but both of our mistresses are and I just felt like the author was trying to say something specific about the relationship between white women and men or white woman and femininity but I don't feel as though I can fully parse it out because I feel like that infantilization exists across the world but I also know that historically we see that a lot within western cultures but I only know that because that's what I'm most educated in yeah I definitely think so I think especially with the affair that happens between Lakshmi's cousin and the young English woman who's half his age there's very much a commentary I think to be made on escape in a certain way of the fact that he especially because he decided to get a divorce and he moved and he left his wife and his child big things happen but I agree that because like this is written by an own voices author and neither of us have that background I, I don't quite know what to make of it either you know like I'm just not educated enough I think about Indian culture to like make any real claims about it except to say that like I think she's saying something and I'm too dumb to get what at this moment (laughs) if you're not too dumb please feel free to message us let us know your thoughts because I definitely think there's something there I don't know how to articulate it or if anything that I think is correct could be correct or that I'm the right person to yeah I agree I think for 
us the easier thing to talk about is the fact that Miranda's being told this story the entire time and it's literally about how somebody in her position is ruining lives right and she like can't empathize enough to actually end it can't empathize enough to be like oh I'm kind of doing this to another woman as well by being in this scenario and it's not until she I mean she has this conversation with the kid with Rohan or Rohin that gets that like starts her off on this journey of self-reflection about what she's doing has consequences but ultimately also her motivations for ending the relationship are selfish too it's because he's not treating her the way he used to really that was one of the main motivators for her to end up severing this relationship so I think it also has a lot to say about how fetishization and exoticization is harmful not just for the people who are like directly on the receiving end of that but it also becomes this really false empathy as well where like you're unable to connect with and humanize the people that you're fetishizing essentially yeah it makes you feel closer to that point of empathy but in in fact takes you farther away and they're both kind of fetishizing each other in different ways yeah okay so I think we're kind of touching on this so I want to talk a little bit about her relationship to like fetishizing Indian and Bengali culture and I think that it's interesting because it starts off with not really understanding it at all right and then her having these images of what she imagines it to be and like that's kind of exoticizing and then she like actually goes and tries to learn yeah also connecting to the conversation you wanted to have about the maps thing all of this starts because he shows her on a map where he grew up and she's disappointed that she can't see any pictures because she can't picture it necessarily and so like this is where the map thing matters it comes up twice yeah so this is interesting to me because I've actually while I'm running I I like to think and ignore whatever I'm listening to and one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is the idea of naming things right and how that can sometimes be appropriative because I feel like I've had some scenarios in my life or I've seen some other people go about this need to categorize and name and when you do that you're both trying to understand something but you're also trying to frame it in a lens your own lens and I think that we as white people do that a lot and it just kind of reminded me a lot of this this story where she wants to understand where this man grew up because she thinks she loves him she wants to understand this culture but at the same time Laxmi has a similar culture and she hasn't really bothered to learn about it before this and I think there is some like learning that happens where she starts to like develop a real interest that goes beyond this fetishization of the culture itself but I don't know I think for me that moment happens the shift happens like I was saying before at the time where she's learning how to write her name and she let me see if I can pull up the quote really fast because it's very you almost like feel the light bulb go off in her mind it said it had taken her several tries to get the letters of her name to resemble the sample letters in the book and even then she wasn't sure if she'd written Mira or Mara it was a scribble to her but somewhere in the world she realized with a shock it meant something this is like the I think for me the closest that she gets to realizing that you can't understand things in the language and lens that you have had your entire life you have to if you'd want to truly understand you have to reach outside of your own experience essentially which is I think a basic lesson but one that people still struggle to learn to this day and it can also be easier said than done but then it's also difficult because right after that scene is the scene where she goes to the marketplace and she's looking specifically for this celebrity because the celebrity is the doppelganger of Deb's wife and so she ends up having this realization and then immediately you go back to this sense of fetishization which like is extra complicated because then it goes back to more traditional affairs 
affair dynamics too, where like in an affair, you're supposed to be curious to a certain extent about your significant other, quote unquote, don't, don't know what to say, but their other significant other, you want to know what they look like and stuff. But in this case, because of the racial difference and the fact that Miranda has no way to like unpack or think about or talk about it in a healthy way, it ends up coming off like a very, very, very strange interaction that she has in this Indian supermarket <laughs> trying to just hunt down this celebrity woman. And it feels like the fetishization just gets double layered. Like she comes up to breathe for a second and you think she might have a breakthrough and then it just starts again. <laughs> yeah. I think when she meets Rohin, there is something that starts to break with that. And I think that's ultimately kind of what ends up giving her the strength to like stop seeing Dev, right? Like I think that I think that meeting Rohin in a way also not just allows her to humanize the fact that this man has an, a wife, but also allows her to humanize this other culture. And I think that that plays into the Atlas stuff. And there's a point where she asks him, he, he asks people that to quiz him on capitals of countries. And she says, India, and she gives him the wrong answer. I think that happens, right? She gives him the wrong answer, and then he corrects her. I don't think so. He just says it's too easy, and he forces her to move on. No, because they say a word. Here, wait. Or maybe I'm thinking of another country. The scene goes, it's not a game. I'm having a competition with a boy at school. We're competing to memorize all the capitals. I'm going to beat him. Miranda nodded. Okay, what's the capital of India? That's no good. He marched away, his arms swinging like a toy soldier. Then he marched back to Loxmi's cousin and tugged at a pocket of her overcoat. Ask me a hard one. Senegal. Okay, so I think that's still an interesting moment, though. I think the fact that she asks him India and he says that's not good, that's easy for me. He has this curiosity about other cultures as well. And I think that it also kind of makes her realize how little she knows, right? Because this is a kid who can name capitals all over the world. And I bet she can't do that because I know I sure as hell can't. Yeah, and he and he only gets one wrong the entire time, and he sits there and takes a second, right? Because she's sitting in an atlas, she tells him what the answer is, and he sits there and he memorizes it, and he really takes it in, and then they move on as well. And I think it's also worth noting, too, that the Indian family we're talking about, all of these people are American. They're of Indian heritage, but Rohin has grown up here his whole life, as far as we know, you know? So, like, there's also... A complication of all of this in the sense that we're also talking about brown people in the United States being also forced to like navigate these disparate heritages as well as dealing with these dumbass white people essentially who just make it harder. Exactly and I think she kind of realizes that for the first time maybe I don't know like she's being a dumbass right and that this kid knows both. Yeah, exactly. And I think also the phrase that's no good is really powerful here because he means it as a seven-year-old probably is just that's too easy. But like as an adult and hearing it as that, you think, yeah, why the fuck would you ask an Indian kid what the capital of India is? First of all, you are asking him the most basic question on the planet, essentially. But also like you've been told multiple times that this kid is a fucking genius. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's that first moment. And I think that's what makes this whole scene with her babysitting so weird. It's that in so many ways he really really is just a kid. He really unpacks and pushes her boundaries in ways that are good and bad. In stuff that like makes you uncomfortable as a reader and makes you want Miranda to, like, it makes you want to shake her a little bit and be like, just stop. <laughs> you need to stop having this conversation and this interaction. That's your onus as a grown up to do it. But also he opens her up in other ways to the fact that what she's doing is wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think that 
what makes this situation for her so uncomfortable and as you've said essentially is the fact that he does know more than her because he has more cultural context than she does and she is seeking that that same sort of context and she feels like a child with him in the same way that she feels like a child with Dev which is why she doesn't feel like she can stand up for herself or set boundaries and rules. I think the part that made me most uncomfortable from her aside from giving him coffee because she probably shouldn't have done that and then like putting on the dress putting on the dress because she had that boundary where she was like no you can't see me undress I didn't know if that was necessarily very weird but from her my biggest discomfort came when she asked him to explain what sexy meant because it was coming from such a selfish place where she was like well this definition will be the same definition in a way that Dev meant when he called me sexy because I don't know what that means that was the part where I was like okay this is now just weird she's really fucked up here and I wanted to know if you had any thoughts you'd like to articulate about that Yeah, no, I agree. She took it to a weird place. I also think, though, it is difficult because if a seven-year-old says something like that to you, I I think that as the adult in charge, you do have some responsibility to, like, address that. But, like, the way she does it and because you see inside her thoughts and her mind and the fact that she automatically thinks about Dev, that's where it just gets so weird and so strange and just very, 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 very uncomfortable. And she puts her hands on him to make him tell her, essentially. He's kicking his feet out and she like puts her hands on his feet so that he'll stop kicking and answer the question which also is weird to me (laughs) yeah it was very very odd especially like at the end of that page it says Miranda felt Rohin's words under her skin the same way she felt Deb's but instead of going hot she felt numb and it's like you're talking to a seven-year-old like why the fuck is this the thought process you're having right now because she's comparing the two because she doesn't know Dev is her context for this entire culture, right? That's why she also compares Dev's wife to the two girls that she knew growing up who her and her family and the rest of her neighborhood were extremely racist towards, right? She thinks that the celebrity that Dev's wife must resemble must be one of these girls because they have similar names. She doesn't actively think that, but that's a part of the thought process. So she's like, this is something different to her. And so she's taking the one context that she has. This child is different to her and she the only other interaction she has for somebody similar to this who is a male is Deb. But it's fucked up because he's seven. And I think that also has a lot to say about the fact that white people in general expect children of other cultures and ethnicities to grow up faster. You see it a lot right now being talked about, rightfully so, with the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. But it's true across other cultures and contexts as well. It doesn't strike her as weird in the same way, I would bet, as if this had happened with a white child. Yeah. And that's emphasized the entire time by the fact that he is mature for his age and he's ahead two grades. He is so smart. And the fact that she feels like it kid with him the whole thing meshes up together in this really gross way of thinking about race as she's trying to muddle through this relationship yeah it's a lot to me this is like the perfect example of microaggressions just all piled against each other because she's never being intentionally racist she holds no hate in her heart but she's just so uneducated and has no idea how to comprehend a culture that isn't her own that she just thinks all of these things that I think especially 20 years later as a white person you you look at and you're like holy fuck (laughs) like the flags are everywhere if this was a friend of mine we'd be like sitting down (laughs) there'd be conversations you know yeah yeah you can't keep comparing the seven-year-old child to the man you're having an affair with (laughs) just because they like look similar because they both have the same color of skin (laughs) so i guess 
I would like to do and offer kind of for myself, but also kind of for listeners and kind of because I feel like we read these books critically to kind of make sense of our own lives and give ourselves models of living and like to learn. How could Miranda have gone about this differently, right? Because these are microaggressions, right? But they're all, a lot of them are internalized. They're not necessarily acted out. And how do you go about that sense-making process in a way that isn't harmful and appropriative? Yeah, man, I don't know. I feel like this is a place even 20 years from now, you see the way in which thinking has changed a lot because this is the kind of thinking that I've had to train myself to unlearn, right? Because this isn't how I, I think about or process other people's cultures and identities. I'm sure it was at one point when I was younger, because that's the kind of environment I grew up in. I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood, town. I have a white family. I think that it has to start from a point of empathy to me. And I mean, my whole life and existence is like all about the fact that the world would be a better place if we're more empathetic humans. Like, did a whole $40,000 degree based on that premise. So like, I'm biased. There's just so many points in this place where if Miranda could just take a fucking step back and stop thinking about herself first, so many of the bad and problematic things she would think of, not just in relation to race, but also in relation to like sexism and her general relationships with the people in this story, even if they're tangential to her, would be improved and a lot better because they would be coming of a from a place of trying to actually understand rather than coming from a place of how do these things affect me first and my life. I think that's her problem. You were saying before She's coming at this with an understanding of trying to make it things that she can digest in the lens that she already has. Whereas in actuality, she needs to step out of that lens and see things from somebody else's point of view. And empathy is really the key to that. No, I agree. I agree. And this is something, like I said before, that I've been thinking a lot about because I think I witnessed the microaggression similar to this recently. And I was trying to like sense make it for myself. Yeah, somebody was obviously trying to figure something out, but putting it through their lens and by doing that, ended up viewing the person who they were trying to figure out in a harmful light. So yeah, you're right, the idea of empathy and then the idea of trying to push away your preconceived notions, right? Because I think that part of her issue is she comes to this through a fetishization lens, which is weird because she she has Lakshmi there for her. She has this opportunity to learn about her friend's culture and never really has shown that interest before. So her first introduction, like, will for it comes from this fetishization aspect. Yeah, and I get, and like, again, I think that tied with the idea of the fact that she's just play acting at what it means to be like an adult through this affair ends up really complicating that because she's coming at her own life from a preconceived notion of how it should be. She's found herself in an affair, so therefore things should be going in this progression. And she just copy pastes almost that ideology onto the fact that Dev is Bengali. Yes. I want to also, okay, we talked a little bit about this. Sexy's definition through this story is kind of implied that it's people who you love but don't know. And I wonder too if like, I mean, that's the same thing that's happening with these men. They don't, it's implied at least, Dev at least is in, infantilizing Miranda and doesn't really know her and is also maybe not as much from a cultural lens and definitely from a certain, certainly a different dynamic and different place, but he's also doing the same thing that she is to his culture. I agree. We talk so much about Miranda 
because the story is from her perspective and you get all of her thoughts. But there is something happening with gender dynamics here as well that like you can never divorce from the race dynamics. But I think as white readers, it's more difficult to untangle those knots from what's happening with Dev's perspective because you're right. It feels like there is a weird sort of reciprocation there with the fetishization from his end, but it's harder to place your finger on what it is. Given the power dynamics. Yeah, given the power dynamics. And just to like break down for listeners in case they're not sure what we're talking about because we're being too abstract, he's a man living in the United States, which has an incredibly white supremacist culture. And this story has a bunch of, it has at least two men going after white women. So I think that there's something to be said there in terms of the relationship to whiteness that may be felt by men of other races, but we're not really there in terms of unpacking it yet, Maggie and I. For sure. And I think that it ties into the fact that in both of the cases, the men meet these women in random situations and like almost make a split second decision. The cousin's husband gets on a plane and he's supposed to be coming home and he gets off in London. He makes a decision over the plane ride and Dev makes the, the decision ultimately over the course of listening to Miranda place this skincare order, which is also hard to unpack because how often is that probably how affairs actually start between people of all races and the time, you know, it's just like a split second decision. There's just a, a lot going on. It's it's an interesting story. It is. Before we end, can we talk about the silver dress? Because I definitely think it's symbolic. So she buys this dress that she thinks will make her look like a mistress. And an old lady at the store says, yeah, that's super sexy. He'll rip it right off. And it never gets worn. And then it ends up sitting in her closet and constantly falling on the floor, which to me symbolizes her sexuality turning from empowerment to just being like slut trash, you know? To me, though, I think it was also interesting because it was emphasized multiple times, the fact that the dress has metal chains for straps and that's part of the reason why it slides off so like it also it also i think ties into the fact that this relationship is unhealthy to a certain extent gets this weird chain between these two people and like is it ultimately good for either one of them i don't know i don't know how to unpack the metaphor but i i do think that it has something to say about the fact that miranda i don't know i guess feels tied to like an idea of what her sexuality should be chained to this idea of what sexy should be and what sexy is and how it should play out in this specific scenario, you know? And every time she tries to push for that harder and harder, we hear about the dress falling on the floor. Yeah, she's imprisoning herself by stepping into the role of mistress. And that's around the time when her relationship starts feeling a lot less satisfying for her because she's imprisoned in that role. And it's also extra hard because this all starts again when his wife comes home. And so she knows that the nature of their relationship is going to change to begin with. And so all of these circumstances come together. And that's really where I think you see the idea of like sexy as, as loving somebody that you don't know coming in because Dev doesn't notice any of these changes, you know? Or if he does, it's to say the fact that he doesn't like the new stuff she bought because it's obscuring the things about her body that he does like or even like she talks about this the place he calls her sexy is essentially like this science museum sort of situation so like even in the it's a christian science museum and they're in some sort of planetarium thing yeah but like it's more of a date situation in which you think that one might be getting to know another person but really they're just in this place that's ultimately seems like it's divorced of any context for both of them and they're just talking about bedroom things and then they hurry home for her when she reflects on that instance initially 
initially she thinks of it as romantic they are getting to know each other and this is like an emotional basis and that's really I think as a reader where you start to see oh no like this is not what she thinks it is and then kind of along those lines even though she's going about it in a really horrible way she's at least wondering about Deb and trying to like figure out his culture and like figure out parts of him that she can't understand we also see scenes where she watches him sleep and is just happy and is trying to memorize his body he really treats her as just an object in a way to get off and like when they converse he asks her things like do you miss me he needs that affirmation from her but she could be anyone we don't see anything of him like trying to get to know her or asking her questions partly maybe because we're through Miranda's perspective yeah for sure is there anything else that you wanted to sort of break down in the story no no all right was this a feminist story Maggie No, I don't think so. But I I don't think that made it a bad story. Like there was still I think a lot of really useful commentary about relationships in there and their really complicated nature. And I think the author did a really great job of writing from a, a white perspective about the ways in which white people like don't know what to do with people different cultures. Yeah, um, I'm gonna surprise you. <laughs> you think it's a feminist story? Okay, so here's why. I mean, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test, so like, ah. But I think that it focuses so much inherently on gender that it's not just about relationships versus I know, and I don't know if I would change my answer now because this is just how I feel today. We talked about a difficult woman in some of the stories there, and I said that I didn't view them as feminist, but I think that it was because gender wasn't as big of a part of the story, right? Like it was more relationships and sometimes they delved into gender roles within relationships. But this story I think is very much about gender. I would say gender and culture, the two big underpinnings, right? If only because we have Dev and then we have the little boy. The fact that we focus so much on masculinity, I think is important and therefore like would categorize as a feminist story because we come to a healthier understanding in the end of gender dynamics and a more empowering one. I get where you're coming from, but I think for me, it's still a no because I'm not convinced about how much Miranda has learned by the end of the story. Like, I think that as readers, especially unpacking it in a critical light, all of that is there. But I think that our main character, like, really shows the opposite of any kind of female solidarity. (laughs) There are, like, it is just based on the relationship to men and stuff. And I don't know how much she learned at the end of it. So I don't necessarily disagree with your answer or think that you're wrong. I I think for me, it's still gonna. (laughs) I don't think she's getting as much from this experience as, like, you and I are yet. But I mean, she does stop seeing Dev and she starts just going out and hanging out with her friend Laxme. So it's true. Although I do think, I guess just to bring up one last quick point, the thing about her not seeing Dev anymore, it does end up being kind of weird because the relationship almost accidentally falls apart. She she makes a mental thing and she's like, I'm going to see him one or two more times and then that's it. And then they just kind of don't work out and the relationship fades into the background. So I do think it is kind of kept open-ended about whether like she actually would have stopped seeing him if it hadn't snowed, if her resolve would have crumbled. That's fair. That's fair. If the resolve would have crumbled. But I also think too, it's an active choice. She had at least made the active choice to at some point stop. And I think too, I mean, Maggie knows this about me, right? When I break up with someone, I have a really, really hard time staying broken up. (laughs) So 
the only way I've ever gotten out is by like taking it day by day and like letting those excuses get in the way. If either of them really wanted to see each other, they would have made that happen. And so, yeah, I think the fact that she's just stopped seeing him is her version, is the story's version of female solidarity, right? Because she's giving him back to his wife. She's decided, I don't want any part of this. There is another woman out there who is crying over this or who could be hurt. Yeah, I get that. I just don't think for me it was ultimately enough. But like I said, I still think it was a good story. This author is a great writer. The actual experience of reading it was really good. I see why she won so many awards for this book. Yeah, it was a very good story. Now that I have it on Libby, I will try and read more of them. Okay, what are you reading right now, Maggie? Oh, that's an excellent question. I'm reading The Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Jokadar. Oh, very good. Very good. I am reading Emily of New Moon, which is a famous series by Ellen Montgomery. And I'm really interested in it right now because I posed the question of whether or not Anne of Green Gables has queer coding and then like did some research about it recently and found out that Ellen Montgomery apparently has said homophobic things because there was a woman who confessed her love to her but she's also known for like burning her journals and stuff and so I just think that's really compelling because in Emily of New Moon there is totally a fucking queer relationship and there are totally old ladies having sex come at me yes that happens it is in the text Okay. Yeah. Great. What are we reading next week? I don't know. What are we reading next week? I think we're starting a great and terrible beauty. No, I think it's I think it's Margaret the first next week. That's right. We're doing that. We're doing that in December. <laughs> right. So it's Margaret the first next week. Maggie's namesake. I wish. All right. See you guys next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.